to to take your Bibles and to turn with me to our text today, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 through 20. Jeremiah 34, verses 18 through 20. There we read the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of the heaven, and to the beasts of the earth. As we continue in our series on covenanting and the Solemn League and Covenant, we consider some objections that have not yet been answered in previous sermons. And this we will proceed to do, but first let us consider our text from God's Word for this Lord's Day. And so our first main point from our text is this. Covenant breaking shown to be a serious aggravation of sin against God's law. And the text that I have just read is the text we'll consider in this main point. Let's consider first the historical context of the text we have just read. And though I won't read Jeremiah 34 verses 1 through 11, let me just summarize what's covered there for you. The opening section of Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 1 through 7, begins with the siege of Jerusalem by the army of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The Lord God issues a prophecy through Jeremiah to King Zedekiah of Judah to the effect that Jerusalem and Zedekiah as king shall not escape the wrath of God and that of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Jerusalem shall be destroyed and laid waste by fire. And Zedekiah and Jerusalem and Judah shall be led into Babylonian captivity. In response to this bitter prophecy, from the Lord God of Israel. 
Zedekiah entered into a national covenant with the Lord according to Jeremiah chapter 34 verses 8 through 11. And he determined with his princes to set all Hebrew servants free that had apparently been held captive indefinitely contrary to the judicial law to which Israel was bound in Exodus chapter 21 verses 1 through 6. God's law there stated that an Israelite who due to indebtedness or theft had become an indentured servant to work off that debt could only be held in servitude six years and then he was to be set free in the seventh year and not set free empty-handed either but with resources to start a new life. The only exception was when the Israelite servant voluntarily chose to remain with his master because he loved his master and wanted to continue with him. In which case, the Israelite servant had his ear bored with an awe, which indicated that he had chosen to serve his master. Rather than to be set free, he had chosen to serve his master all the days of his life. Rather than having followed this merciful provision established by God as a part of the national covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, the wealthy princes and nobles of Judah had disobeyed God and had made permanent slaves of Israelites for their own benefit and their own profit. Apparently, King Zedekiah sought to placate God's just anger with Judah for their idolatry and covenant breaking by solemnly engaging themselves in a national covenant or rather the renewal of their national covenant with God and that they would, as a part of that covenant renewal, set free all of these Israelite servants that had been held indefinitely. Babylon is ready to knock down the gates of Jerusalem. They have besieged the city and Zedekiah renews the national covenant with God in a solemn ceremony which we'll consider more closely in a moment. And he sets the captives free. Now, was this a sincere case of self-humiliation on the part of Zedekiah and his princes? Or was it a treasonous case of playing games with the Most High God? Well, let us see. We come then to the next point. Having considered the historical context, let's consider now hypocrisy revealed. In Jeremiah 34, verses 12 through 16, and again, I'll not read all of those verses, but summarize the content of them. The Lord begins by calling to remembrance the national covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, 
wherein the Lord had established this merciful law of setting free Israelite servants after six years of bondage. And though Zedekiah and his princes had acted in accordance with God's covenant by setting the captives free, they polluted and profaned the most holy name of God, whose holy name they had invoked in their solemn ceremony in the temple by forcibly taking captive once again the very servants they had previously or just set free. Notice what it says in, in chapter 34, verses 15 and 16. God says to Jeremiah, speaking to Zedekiah and these nobles and these princes, And ye were now turned and had done right in my sight in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor. And ye had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But ye turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. Now, why would Zedekiah go through this covenant renewal in the temple with all of the representatives of the kingdom and give outward demonstration of their covenant renewal by setting all Israelite servants free. And then, just to turn around and coerce them, these same servants that he had just set free, coerce them back into Jewish captivity. Why? Well, we find our answer later on in that chapter in Jeremiah 34, 21 where we read, And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes, will I give into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of them that seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which are gone up from you. Which are gone up from you. There we see that Zedekiah broke covenant with God and forced freemen back into captivity when the Babylonians lifted the siege around Jerusalem in order to attend to matters with Egypt, with whom Judah was in league. And if you want to write down just a reference later on in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 37, verses 1 through 10, we see the, the context here that when Babylon lifted the siege, they went to meet Egypt in battle. And so the siege was lifted. Zedekiah then takes back the captives that he had set free. You see, dear ones, Zedekiah and his princes are no better than Pharaoh who set the Israelites free. And then had a change of heart 
when he was no longer under the judgment of the plagues sent by God. In fact, Zedekiah, I would submit, is far worse than Pharaoh because Zedekiah broke the national covenant of his forefathers and polluted and showed the highest degree of contempt for God by playing games with the Most High God and breaking covenant with him when the threat of the Babylonians was no longer there. It reminds me of the way in which the name of God was used by covenant breakers in England who engaged in the Solemn League and Covenant with Scotland when the armies of Scotland were needed to help defend them against the attack of Charles I. But when the parliamentary forces began to turn tide against the royal the royalist forces of Charles I, religious uniformity and uprooting of denominationalism and sectarianism was not so important any longer. There was lawful covenants with God. Lawful covenants with man are not only to be kept when disaster and impending doom wait at the gate of our house, church, city, or nation. We reveal, dear ones, our true character when we uphold lawful covenants, even when there is no imminent danger or when a lawful civil or ecclesiastical court is no longer around to remind us of our solemn covenanted duties which we still owe to God regardless of our circumstances. Beloved, if we play games with God by invoking His name when we are in trouble or when we are more closely watched but pollute His most glorious name when He delivers us or when we are no longer closely watched, we face the same threat that Judah faced when the Lord brought Babylon back after having warred with Egypt. After having defeated Egypt, God brought Babylon back to Jerusalem, besieging Jerusalem and ultimately destroying Jerusalem, burning Jerusalem and leading Jerusalem and Judah captive. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Galatians 6-7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Dear ones, regardless of the circumstances, God declares he is blessed or she is blessed who sweareth to his or her own hurt and changeth not. Psalm 15.4 Such a one does not play games with the covenant-keeping God. And then our third and final point with regard to our text is this, the significance of the covenant ceremony. The significance of the covenant ceremony 
in Jeremiah 34, verses 18 through 20, which is our text. And let me read it once again for you. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. In verses 18 and 19 here, there is explained the origin of the common phrase that we find in the Old Testament, the phrase, to make a covenant. What's the origin of that phrase, to make a covenant? For in the Hebrew text, the words are quite literally translated to cut a covenant. To cut a covenant. This phrase, to cut a covenant, is used about 80 times in the Hebrew Old Testament to refer to covenants God makes with man, as with Abraham in Genesis 15:18, and with Israel in Exodus 24:8, to refer to covenants man makes with God, as Jehoiada, the priest, did. In 2 Kings 11.17, as King Hezekiah did in 2 Chronicles 29.10, as King Josiah did in 2 Chronicles 34.31, as Ezra did in Ezra 10.3, as the saints do, as the saints or the people of God do in Psalm 50 verse 5 and as the kingdom of Judah did in our text here in Jeremiah 34:15 to cut a covenant also refers to the covenants man makes with man in the old testament as between Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21:27 between Israel and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9.15 and between David and Solomon, I'm sorry, David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18.3. So what is it? To cut a covenant, what is it that is cut in making a covenant? Well, according to our text, a calf. An animal was cut into two pieces. And then what? The chief representatives of the kingdom of Judah, the princes, eunuchs, priests, and leaders of all the people then walked between the two bloody pieces of the calf there in the temple, the holy temple of the Lord, in order to graphically illustrate and impress upon the consciences 
of all the people that if they turned their backs upon the covenant they were making with God, they deserved themselves to be cut into pieces by the Lord. As the people passed between the pieces of the calf, they were saying, let this happen to me. Let this happen to us if we turn our backs upon our God and His covenant. Although this phrase, to cut a covenant, was used so many times in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that an animal was actually cut into pieces every time the phrase was used because the phrase simply began to become an axiom. It became simply a saying to cut a covenant. Even though an animal wasn't slain at every covenant that was made, that's what everyone was reminded of every time a covenant was made, whether there was an animal slain and divided into pieces or not. They were reminded, they were, they were, uh, it was brought to their attention, to their memory, to their remembrance that, that they were taking upon themselves an oath. Let this happen to me if I do not keep the covenant that I am making, either with God or with my fellow man. And dear ones, that was the purpose of these words, to cut a covenant. To increase the gravity, the seriousness, and solemnity of making covenants. For God will not be mocked. I wonder, dear ones, if our covenants with God... Our marital covenants, our covenants with one another, our ecclesiastical covenants would be taken more seriously. Our national covenants would be taken more seriously if we slaughtered a calf and walked between the bloody pieces of that calf as we engaged ourselves or renewed those solemn covenants. Well, apparently, even though the ceremony, the psalm ceremony, occurred in the temple of the Most High God, and even though this calf was slain and divided into two pieces, and even though all the chief representatives of the nation solemnly passed through the midst of those bloody pieces, in spite of all of that, it left no lasting impact on the leaders of Judah. For after the Babylonians lifted the siege against Jerusalem to battle the Egyptians, the people turned their backs upon the Lord and forced those Israelites who had been set free back into bondage. Thus the Lord set Judah free, he says, that he would set them free free to be swallowed up with the sword, pestilence, famine, and captivity. In Jeremiah 34, 17. They had mocked God 
and the curse that they took in walking through the bloody pieces of the calf fell upon them. Dear ones, the very first time this phrase, to cut a covenant, the very first time this phrase appears in the Old Testament scriptures is in Genesis 15:18, when God cut a covenant with Abraham and with his seed after him to be his God and the God of his descendants. A token of that covenant of grace which God was establishing with Abraham and with his seed of which we are his seed by the grace of God. But what is interesting about that covenant is that Abraham did not walk through the bloody pieces. But God, in the form of a torch, passed himself alone through the bloody pieces. Thereby condescending to such a degree for our benefit for our help and our aid that he would keep his covenant. He would not break his promises to us forever. He called upon himself that self-maledictory oath. Let this happen to me if I break this covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And the chief seed of Abraham dear ones the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and he suffered and he died and he passed through the bloody parts except they weren't the bloody parts of an animal they were it was his own blood that was shed in order to secure that covenant of grace with his people now and for all eternity. There was this is the foundation of the covenant of grace that God himself must first walk through and engage and initiate a covenant of grace with us. Not that we first reach out to him and initiate a covenant with him, but that he first initiates a covenant with us by way of the covenant of grace. In fact, we can only covenant with God and walk through those bloody parts of the animal. We can only covenant with God because He has first covenanted with us. Because Jesus Christ has passed through the bloody parts of that animal, has offered His own life in ransom for our lives, has fulfilled all righteousness for us, has borne the wrath and curse of God for us and thereby imputes that righteousness which is His to us when we are given faith by Him to trust and to lay hold of Christ and His benefits. Jesus Christ, as I've said in the past, is our covenant keeper. We could never keep the terms of the covenant perfectly. 
We fall, we fail in keeping the terms of the covenant of grace and breaking his commandments all the time. Though his commandments uh, are no longer uh, that which condemn us to hell because Christ has kept the commandments of God for us and that righteousness has been imputed to us, they are nevertheless still authoritative because they come from God. They still express the righteousness of His holy nature. They are still our guide to lead us into paths of righteousness and truth. But yet we continue to fail and to fall. And we are only restored and kept in that covenant of grace because Christ has walked through those bloody parts on our behalf for us. Therefore, the relationship of the covenants that we make with God to the covenant of grace that he makes with us is simply that our covenants are simply an expression of our love and our gratitude to God for having rescued us and saved us, given us everlasting life, everlasting righteousness, everlasting forgiveness, everlasting hope, everlasting peace, an everlasting inheritance, an everlasting love. Dear ones, have you in your own mind walked through the bloody pieces of that animal in renewing your, co- your baptismal covenant to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil all the days of your life? Have you in your own mind walked through the bloody pieces of that animal in your marriage covenant, in your business covenants, in your national and ecclesiastical covenants? And in the solemn league and covenant, dear ones, you can't, you can't give up. You can't quit, for you have cut a covenant. You've cut a covenant. Turn to Christ, your covenant keeper, for all the grace that you need every single day, for He has already walked through the bloody pieces for you. For all of you who have put your trust in Him alone for your eternal salvation, tell Him now. Tell Him now. I am am Thine. Save me. I am Thine. Clothe me. I am Thine. Feed me. I am Thine. Heal me. I am Thine. Sanctify me. I am Thine. Comfort me. I am Thine. Fill me with thy glory and with thy praise. Let the whole earth be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. Amen. We now come, dear ones, to one objection and we will consider another one or a a few more next time. But we end the sermon today with one objection. And it is a historical objection. 
But I think it illustrates how, again, far people are willing to go to seek to rid themselves of lawful covenants. Now, this objection that I'm going to mention may not be one you would consider to have weight, but some do. I've seen it presented on the internet. And so, because this is the case, I think it is important to to, uh, state the objection and then respond to it. So, this is the objection. The Westminster Parliament of England that met in in, uh, Westminster, there in England, did not have the lawful authority to engage in a national covenant without the consent of King Charles I. This objection also notes that King Charles I issued a proclamation from Oxford denouncing the Solemn League and Covenant as, quote, in truth nothing else but a traitorous and seditious combination against us and the established religion of this kingdom, end of quote charging all his loyal subjects, quote, that they presume not to take the said seditious and traitorous covenant, end of quote. Further, this objection observes that Charles I called a separate and rival parliament to that of Westminster. He called a separate parliament in Oxford, which was claimed by Charles to be the lawful parliament of England and which first met in Oxford on January the 22nd, 1644. That parliament in Oxford alone, according to this objection, had a lawful authority because it alone had the consent and summons of the king. Thus, this objection maintains that the Solemn League and Covenant was unlawful, number one, because it was not established by a lawful parliament, and number two, because parliament does not have the authority to establish a national covenant or any other act or law without the joint signature, the consent of the king. Before responding to this, let me simply draw out the consequences of this objection for you so that you see it clearly. The consequences of this objection, if this objection is true, would be that the Solemn League and Covenant was only lawfully enacted in Scotland because the Parliament there lawfully swore the Solemn League and Covenant and Charles II subsequently at his coronation oath swore the Solemn League and Covenant upon becoming the king of Scotland. Which would mean if it only applies to Scotland and therefore does not apply to England and Ireland and if England is not bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, then none of His Majesty's dominions 
are bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, which would mean that the United States, Canada, etc. are not bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. So you see the implications, the consequences, if this objection is true. In the first place, it should be noted that the Westminster Parliament was, in fact, the lawful legislative body in England. In fact, King Charles I had himself called and summoned the Parliament at Westminster into session. And it's called the Long Parliament. On November the 3rd, 1640, after two disastrous losses to the Scots forces in the Bishops' Wars of 1639 and 1640. But when the lawfully elected Parliament of Westminster would not merely rubber stamp the will of the king, but resisted his tyrannous attempts of absolute rule, he left Westminster and set up his royal residence in Oxford, 57 miles to the east of Westminster. And in order to challenge the legitimacy of the Westminster Parliament, which he had called into session, and which only the Parliament itself could dissolve by way of a a law, an act that had been just recently enacted and approved by the king, Charles summoned the House of Lords and the House of Commons to leave Westminster and to meet at Oxford. It would appear that 34 from the House of Lords, nearly one half of its members, and 118 from the House of Commons, about one third of its members, gathered at Oxford. For this was the number that signed a document to the king to pursue negotiations with the parliament in Westminster. And those numbers, I would add, that I just mentioned, those numbers that gathered in Oxford dwindled to fewer and fewer as they realized that the king was plotting to bring Irish Catholics into England to fight and to wage war, to wage a civil war against his own people. Thus, the Westminster Parliament, I would submit, both had both the lawful call of the king, who could not lawfully dissolve that parliament without the consent of the Parliament itself. And the Westminster Parliament also, for whatever it's worth, had the majority of the members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Thus it cannot be established that the Westminster Parliament was not the lawful legislative body of England. Furthermore, the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn this is extremely important, 
The Solemn League and Covenant was sworn by both houses of Parliament, the House of Commons on September the 25th, 1643, and by the House of Lords on October the 15th, 1643, before there was ever a rival Parliament even called or assembled in Oxford. It was the following year, in January January the 22nd, 1644, that, that they met in Oxford. Thus, at the time that the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn by Parliament as a national covenant, the Parliament at Westminster was the only existing Parliament in England. The only way that one can argue then is not that it wasn't a lawful parliament because it had a competing parliament when the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn and became a national covenant. The only way that one can argue is that the covenant itself was unlawful from the very beginning. And we've already dealt with that objection in past sermons. Secondly, Secondly, it is not true that Parliament could not establish a lawful national covenant without the signature of the king when the king was a tyrant seeking to rule absolutely and using military force to overpower the lawfully elected Parliament that met at Westminster. It is true that ordinarily king and Parliament rule together. It is true ordinarily that the king does consent to and sign official legislation. However, when the king becomes a tyrant and rules absolutely in civil and ecclesiastical matters, parliaments, being the representatives of the people, can and should take steps to defend themselves against such absolute tyranny, which is what the Parliament of England did. Samuel Rutherford wrote his treatise on this subject entitled Lex Rex or The Law and the Prince. In the midst of this very conflict between the king and Parliament in 1644, that book was written in the midst of this controversy. In this book, Rutherford cogently dismantles the arguments of those who promote the absolute authority of the king and rather demonstrates the lawful authority of parliament to rule, to enact laws and establish national covenants without the consent of the king who is a tyrant. Essentially, Rutherford's biblical and historical argument can be summarized as follows. It is Parliament, by the will and consent of the people, as their representatives, that make a king. But the king does not make the people. The king does not make the representatives of the people in Parliament. It's Parliament and the people that make the king, that constitute the king, that confer authority and power to the king. Thus, the original power of Parliament is greater, Rutherford argues, is greater than that of the king, so that when the king rules 
absolutely and tyrannically against the moral good of the people and against his own coronation oath, his, that is, his covenant with the people that he took when he became king. And when the king will not be reformed from his continual flagrant tyranny, but rather will raise military forces against the parliament and against the people, the people through their elected parliament have a duty before God to subdue such a tyrant and to enact all appropriate legislation and covenants that protect both the lawful rights and privileges of parliament and the king, which is precisely what the third article of the Solemn League and Covenant addresses, protecting the lawful rights and privileges of both parliament and king. Listen to the words of Rutherford from Lex Rex, two very brief quotes. He says, There is not like reason to grant so much to the king as to parliaments. Because certainly parliaments who make kings under God are above any one man. And they must have more authority and wisdom than any one king. The power of all the parliament was never given to the king by God. The parliament are as essentially judges as the king. And therefore the king's deed may well be revoked because he acted nothing as king. And then, uh, then one other quote. That was in pages 34 and 35. And then page 98 of Lex Rex. Rutherford says, Those who make the king and so have power to unmake him in the case of tyranny must be above the king in power of government. Likewise, Rutherford argues from Scripture throughout the book, Lex Rex, argues from Scripture, history, and reason that Parliament may engage the nation in a national covenant without the king's consent when the king is a tyrant and flagrantly violates his coronation oath to preserve the true religion and the rights and privileges of the people. Rutherford mentions the biblical examples of those people living in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel after it was divided, people living in the northern kingdom who had their own kings, the kings of Israel, and yet who were invited by the kings of Judah to come and to swear and to renew the national covenant of Israel. And these people did not consult their king they did not get consent from their king to come down to Judah and to participate in that renewal of the national covenant. They did so because they had the right to do so. They didn't have to seek the consent of the king to swear to swear that covenant. Well, that was a situation where there were two separate kings, a king over Israel and a king over, over Judah. In the time of England and Scotland, there was only one king. Certainly they had the right to do so. If they, if they had the right to do so in a situation where there were separate kings, how much more so they had the right to do so where there was only one king. 
And we find that happening where the people came from the northern kingdom of Israel to Judah to join with them in the work of the covenant of reformation under Asa in 2 Chronicles 15, 9-12 and under Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 30, verses 1 and 11. And likewise, the Westminster Assembly itself, which was convened by Parliament meeting in Westminster and was asked to write an exhortation to be read at the taking of the Solemn League and Covenant, they also likewise argued that it was lawful to swear the Solemn League and Covenant without the king's consent in the present circumstances due to his tyranny. The best divines throughout the United throughout uh, Britain for maybe the, the the greatest and most august and and uh, the most scholarly assembly ever to gather said and determined that it was lawful to take this covenant, a national covenant, without the king's consent under the circumstances. Finally, the matter of the king's consent. Let's just mention this. The matter of the king's consent to the Solemn League and Covenant becomes a moot point. For Charles II did, in fact, swear two times, not once, but twice, the Solemn League and Covenant in 1650 and in 1651. And he swore it as the king of England, Ireland, and Scotland, even though it was a a coronation, the official coronation for Scotland. He swore it as the king of England, Ireland, and Scotland. That's actually in the coronation oath. And he also swore to promote the Solemn League and Covenant. He also swore to promote that covenanted reformation in all his dominions at that time as well. But whatever it's worth, again, I mean, if someone wants to uh, follow merely the legislative acts of what they consider to be a lawful parliament in uh, England uh, so that the objector who has raised this objection that we are dealing with now would want to hear when did, it's an interesting question, when did Charles, according to the Parliament of England, this is subsequently, this is when there was no longer any Parliament in Oxford, there was only one Parliament, so a few years later, and this is uh, in Uh, This is on May the 8th, 1660. Both houses of Parliament declare that Charles II became the official ruler, became the king of England, Ireland, and Scotland when? Upon the death of his father in 1649. And so, when he swore, using that argument, when he swore the Solemn League and Covenant in 1650 and 1651, even his own parliament 
His own parliament, Charles II's own parliament, said he became king of England in 1649 when his father was executed. This proclamation reads in part accordingly. We therefore, the lords and commons now assembled in parliament together with the Lord Mayor, aldermen and commons of the city of London and other freemen of this kingdom now present do according to our duty and allegiance heartily, joyfully and unanimously acknowledge and proclaim that immediately upon the decease of our late sovereign Lord King Charles the imperial crown of the realm of England and of all the kingdoms dominions and rights belonging to the same did by inheritance birthright and lawful and undoubted succession descend and come to his most excellent majesty Charles the second again May the 8th 1660 thus the solemn league and covenant there was became a national covenant in part of the fundamental law of England, Ireland, and Scotland. In 1643, as the respective parliaments enacted and swore it as such, although it did not have the consent of Charles I, it did obtain the consent of the king when Charles II swore it twice as the king of England, Ireland, and Scotland and swore to uphold it in all his dominions. Beloved, in conclusion... We will continue in one more sermon to respond to objections before we complete our present series on the Solemn League and Covenant. But dear ones, as we close, let us remember, let us remember our forefathers walked, as it were, through the bloody pieces of that animal when they swore the Solemn League and Covenant and we walk through it with them. And we walk through it with them. Let us then not pollute. Let us not then profane the most holy name of the Lord by ignoring, neglecting, forgetting, or despising the sacred covenant or any lawful covenant by which we are bound. For we cannot play games with the Most High God. Let us therefore cling to Christ by faith alone who has himself walked through those bloody pieces in fulfilling all righteousness for us, his people, when he hung upon that cross and suffered the shame of the cross and bore the everlasting wrath of God for us. Let us, therefore, dear ones, joyfully, not begrudgingly, let us joyfully take up his cross, deny ourselves, and follow him out of love, out of gratitude to him who died that we might live. Let us stand together in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise Thee and thank Thee for 
the richness of thy word and thy covenant, how thou dost by thy spirit open our eyes to behold the glory of that covenant of grace. O Lord, it does not make us want to avoid walking through those bloody pieces to cut a covenant with thee when we understand what thou hast done for us. Out of love and obedience, Lord, it is what we want and desire to do. And our forefathers have done so, and we walked through those same bloody pieces with them, O God, for we are their posterity. And we pray, our Heavenly Father, that thou would give to us the grace to persevere in spite of much opposition, ridicule, forgetfulness, and rebellion against thy covenant. Help us, our God, to joyfully take up that covenant, to joyfully take up thy cross, deny ourselves, and to follow thee. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.